Hey, it's Lou here, welcoming you to the first episode in this special series of Conversations from Shade, supported by Hauser and Worth. And in this series, we'll be exploring unencumbered voices in curated spaces, inspired by the life and the work of Sir Frank Bowling. It was the first time in my life that I had the opportunity to, to get down and do what I wanted to do. I mean, you know, like I'm 24, you know. And I had the most marvelous, satisfying experience. But, I mean, that was one of the, the moments in my life when I knew, I knew and what I wanted to do, how I was going to go about it, etc. Bowling has been hailed as one of the finest British artists of his generation. He was born in British Guiana in 1934 and moved to London in 1953 to embark on an education in art. And between 57 and 59, Bowling studied at the Chelsea School of Art and the City and Guilds London Art School, before winning a scholarship to the Royal College of Art to study painting, where he graduated with the Silver Medal in 1962. And by the early 60s, he was recognised as an original force in London's art scene, with a style combining figurative, symbolic and abstract elements. This three-episode series, released throughout the summer, will provide a collaborative platform for diverse perspectives, investigating freedom of expression today and throughout art history. Today I'm delighted to say that my guest is Silas Munro, a partner of Polymode, a studio that leads the edge of contemporary graphic design through poetic research, learning experiences and, in their own words, they make cool shit for clients in the cultural sphere, innovative businesses and community-based organisations. Past collaborations include the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum, Mark Bradford at the Venice Biennale and MoMA. I think to be in this series of successions or networks, to be connected to legacies of expression, of creativity, especially people who have been historically marginalized, is what really helps me show up. So here we go. Let's hear the conversation. Enjoy. Hey Silas, I'm so happy that you've joined me today so early in the morning. It's like 8am your time, so I appreciate that. Um, And we've been meaning to connect for a conversation for a little while now. I'm delighted that we could make it happen for this series, which is inspired by the life and the work of Sir Frank Bowling. Well, I'm so honoured to be here. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to speaking to you about Frank's work um, I think he's a brilliant painter and very inspiring. So, and I, I really um, respect your work, both the, the conversations you're having and the research that you do is is so um, inspired. Thank <laughs> inspiring. you. Thank you so much. I'm honored to have you say that. Thank you. And well, you mentioned research and he wrote an essay in 1971 in the Art News Journal. And he said... It's as though what is being said is that whatever black people do in the various areas labelled art is art, you know, with a capital A. And and hence, we give the label black art for artists working within the art realm. As I understand what he's saying, that sort of any creative activities that we partake in are given this unnecessary framing or official designation as art 
and precisely because of this attempt to officialize our work or our creative activities, the further designation of black art ends up being an unavoidable label. What I think he's saying is that the whole thing is kind of like vacuous and, you know, it's distracting. And and he goes on to say that various spokesmen make rules to govern this supposed new form of expression. And of course, we know that, you know, this form of expression was, was never new, um, but it was discovered as such. Um, and what intrigued me throughout this research that I've been doing for the series is that it's made me look um, at how identity is used to frame and impose narratives onto artists' work, especially within curated spaces. And that led me to think about the work that I've been doing and the conversations that I've been having, uh, which have been to explore the context in which artists create, which is based on their experience and uh, their reception in society and reception to society. And I'm having these conversations because I felt that within the mainstream dialogue on art, these conversations weren't happening enough or um, they were too binary in the sense of how they were framed as black art conversations, regardless of the work itself or the artists that were creating them. Um, and even today, I've been really noticing since I've been doing this research, like the segregation that's imposed on uh, an artist's activity, you know, and in art journals and in galleries, you know, the separation will still be enforced. And now thinking about all that, I've been, I've come to the conclusion that black art is kind of a narrow and unhelpful lens in which to view an individual's work. And, um, and it's made me question uh, myself that I've been unconsciously affected within this wider narrative of segregation. And, and I've been thinking, well, maybe my mind has kind of been colonized in a way. And I wonder if any of this kind of discovery that I've had as resonates with you in any way. And if you've ever had any thoughts on this kind of labeling and its um, effects on the conversations and the framing um, of black artists within curated spaces. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Um, I'm with you, like I'm living in it, both, you know, as a black designer, artist, uh, a queer person, um, and and also uh, kind of a multifaceted set of identities. My mother is from Uganda, but my father is from Minnesota. So I have this kind of um, range of skin tones and experiences mm -hmm. like within my own family. And so I think I, I grapple with this a lot. Um, and I, I so relate to the idea of um, the notion of being colonized in our own mind. And it's interesting because I, I run a studio called Polymode um, and that, that title, like meaning sort of like many ways of working and many styles was actually related to a thesis that I did at CalArts when I was in graduate school studying graphic design. And I was very much grappling with this idea of like, who am I as a person? What is my identity? Um, and how does that relate to my work as a designer? And um, this was a fair amount of time ago. So I was fairly young and kind of grappling with this idea of sort of like no, being a bit of a know-it-all about design and art, but kind of not knowing myself. And so I made these four fictionalized designers 
uh, a biracial designer, a bodybuilding graphic designer. I was doing a lot of weightlifting at the time, <laughs> a queer designer, and um, this sort of philosophical designer. They all have names and personas, and I, I interviewed them, wow. and then they made work kind of in this dialect of this identity. And so that was kind of the beginning of me realizing how um, how much exclusion there is in the history of design and art and and how hard it was for me to sort of, in some ways, especially design, I think design is even worse than art <laughs> in terms of like inclusion and colonization of it's like all white European cis men um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of what's being looked at and then kind of little pockets um, of representation of blackness or queerness or anything that's not that main and, and you know, let alone women. So um, I, I guess I just, I appreciate what Frank is saying here in the sense of, in one ways, that notion of black art coming up in the seventies was, you know, tied to liberation, right? It was tied to black collectives. Um, I have kind of more stateside perspective, but I, I think mm. of Afrocobra in Chicago um, and sort of the black arts movement was a way to sort of reclaim this space mm. to even get into the gallery first. Mm-hmm. And then I think, the repercussions of that is that the art world sort of just kept segregating, yes. <laughs> segregating artists of colors and kind of labeling them. Um, and, and so for me, one of the things I think about, and I can relate to what Frank is saying about this idea of often feel that I'm pigeonholed. So, you know, I love my practice as a designer, but generally the first <laughs> projects that we were asked to do were like, design the catalog of that black artist right, right, right. <laughs> or the black the black gay artist or like you know here's yeah. another black artist yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, i wonder I, mean, I wonder yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're like you i can I mean? work in other areas <laughs> yeah, too yes exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's so interesting because these conversations that i have with uh creatives that work in various uh spheres and you know i've spoken to um photographers and I remember I spoke to a fashion photographer Marielle Tyler she's actually just shot that Whoopi Goldberg um, cover for Variety Mm. and um, I was interviewing her and she was talking about her experiences I just remembered this like one phrase she used and she was like you know I can photograph white people too (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I was like well that just sums everything up doesn't it you know Well, I was excited to ask you into this conversation precisely because, you know, like my work, your work sits at the intersection of um, identities and, you know, I'm a a biracial woman um, um, and also I have a a chronic like illness and disability as well. So that kind of affects the way that I work and who I interact with in certain ways. And I was watching your brilliant talk, um, which you held for the students at CalArts, which is the California College of the Arts, and it was titled A Designer's Struggle for Identity. And and here you talked about the designers that you identified with on your journey of being a designer. And I loved that you mapped these connections visually, and it was like a design ancestry. And you talked about how you found a sense of community in, in mapping those connections which I totally understand because when I started my career as a photographer which was 20 years ago um, uh, I literally did not personally know one other black female 
photographer uh, working in London. And I was like an anomaly. You know, people were interested in me. I don't even know if it was more, (laughs) more in me or in my work. But we have an instinct. You know, we need to find these connections to give us kind of the sense of of home to, to give us the confidence to move forward in our career, knowing that we weren't the only ones and we're not the only ones. And there's a lot of satisfaction that comes from that. And I wondered with this mapping that that that, that you've spent some real time considering if it's really helped you orientate yourself as a designer and, and, and how it's helped you and where it's taken you. Yeah, it, thank you for saying that. That um, talk was definitely one of the most personal talks that I've given and it felt really powerful to feel really integrated and whole, you know, and I think that's um, part of why I gave that talk. And it's, the title is inspired by a James Baldwin essay or Mm -hmm. speech where he's talking about the artist's struggle for integrity. And um, I adapted to the designer and uh, in it, he's really talking about this idea of bearing witness Um, and bearing witness to things that we can't face, um, that no one wants to face, but it's sort of the artist or designer's responsibility to do that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like that's our gift to society. And I feel like, sounds like based on your experience as a photographer in London and in very white spaces, Mm -hmm. um, there's this kind of tension between feeling isolated and then wanting to be a part of and sort of like uh, wanting to be connected both to the present moment, but also like where are my ancestors. And so yes. for me, that's what that mapping of design history was like. I had realized, oh, I don't see myself like not only in the classroom in terms of the teachers or other students, there was one other black student in my department at CalArts, mm-hmm. Tashika Arsenio Sutton. And since then, we've collaborated on this BIPOC design history um, course. So much has been happening with grief in the world. And I was mm. grieving my own loss of my father. And one of the books that was really helpful for me that a friend told me about is this book called Ancestral Medicine mm. by Dr. Daniel Four. And the reason I started reading the book is my friend, Sarah Vaith Godsteiner, she's like a moon magic um, person and designer and uh, amazing, like, spiritual person, but basically was talking about this term well ancestors mm. in the book. And I was like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> and so I started reading the text and basically it's this idea of when you're doing lineage work, the idea is to connect to ancestors that, you know, were well in the sense of like passing and having a good life. And if you're do if you want to do trauma work or if you want to sort of unpack things in your lineage you start with the ones that are well (laughs) and so that's kind of was like oh I can use that or I can adapt that metaphor for design history and so that led me to finding you know W.E.B. Du Bois you know and his um, social activism history but also design which was not really known and um, thinking about other queer black designers in the Harlem Renaissance you know those connected to the publication Fire and um Bruce Nugent and who is you know collaborating with Langston Hughes and then suddenly you're like it becomes cascading and where as you put it you find this sense of community and that those past relationships like suddenly I'm meeting other black you know 
design educators and being in dialogue with them. There's a bit of a paradox in this identity space where, or, or visibility space where, in a sense, like you almost need to say like black or black design or BIPOC to center it. Mm. But at the same time, you kind of, it, it does create this like segregation thing that you're talking about. So like, how do we find that balance between undoing the work of being excluded and not visible and that also try to find this like equity, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where it's like, mm-hmm. we're black and we're designers and we're human beings, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. a surfer, you know? So, mm-hmm. Yeah. When I'm thinking about how we can, you know, regardless of how much we try to not self-segregate, even when that comes from a place of trying to find community, I feel like until society catches up and does not place this label, these labels on us, what are we to do? Because regardless of the work that we're creating, um, that vision or that idea of what the work is or how it's framed is going to be put upon it by the viewer. And in practical terms, how we try to n- not let that affect us too much. I don't know what we can do apart from keep on having conversations with our clients, with um, the galleries that we're working with, the education spaces that we're working within, um, until they kind of uh, keep up with with how we feel about our positioning. I love that you talked about society and it's that kind of looking at the uh, bigger pictures. I don't know if you've started watching the HBO documentary series by Raoul Peck uh, called Exterminate All the Brutes. Mm -hmm. I did. Yeah, I did. You know, because he did, there's like a connection between him and James Baldwin because he did, you know, I Am Not Your Negro, the film about him. But that Mm -hmm. series and the way that he's unpacking the colonialism and the brutality of of society of societies is so chilling and so honest and it really shows you like we have a lot of work to do <laughs> like yeah, as, yeah, a, yeah. as a as a planet right to to get to this place where we're not not having to be sort of stuck in these side conversations or um Mm, different statuses yeah that particular piece of work by Raoul Peck I just um just as an aside which I probably won't keep it in in the Mm -hmm. edit but um yeah uh that's done under HBO Sky TV and they 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 offered me an interview with Raoul for um (gasps) yeah and can you believe (laughs) you won't believe this and I was like I just can't do it like I couldn't do it I couldn't fit it in with um, Uh, other projects that uh, I was having no I get it I totally yeah, that's a, yeah, I hate when that happens. Yeah. So you've got to honor your limits, right? Yeah, you actually, you um, know, you absolutely have. I'm at home. I'm a mom. I've got a child. I home educate mm, her full time. This is not my full time job, you know. Right. And I just, right. if I do this, this is like 20, 30, 40 hours of work for me, you know, because mm, I like to do my research. And I love hearing you say that. I feel like you should really honor yourself for that's something I'm that's inspiring to me that you're like, I just, I can't full stop, as you say over there. Like, that's amazing. I think I want to do that more, not to say I want to miss an opportunity, but like Mm -hmm. the world's abundant, right? There's Mm -hmm. plenty of opportunities and we need to take care of ourselves. And I think this is connected to that idea of like, I don't think white, some white artists, there's an intersectionality between like trying to have it all and do it all. I think for me, 
as like an artist of color, as a queer artist, like I sometimes feel pressure where I have to like be excellent yes. or do all the things. And it's a total trap. And I think mm. that's also, that's the colonization in in us or in me mm. where I'm like, oh, I have to, I have to, I have to, I missed out. And it's like, no, I don't. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I totally hear that. You know, my dad, he's uh, from a like a, a really traditional West African um, Ghanaian background and family where it's like you work, work, work. You never say no. <laughs> so uh, that's like a, a, a constant conflict because that's how he had to survive. You know, his experience was very def- different to mine as a first generation like immigrant into the UK in the 1950s. And his was, I will prove myself by working all the hours. But, you know, it is honouring uh myself and my energy and and what I'm able to do but I love it that you uh, mentioned Du Bois's um book uh and and his work his voice was so strong and so rich and so um expressive and you worked on um two projects that I found particularly exciting and I can't believe that I was looking at all the um the work and the and the graphics that were coming from the Willie Smith exhibition Mm. and I had no idea that you had contributed to that so you worked on Willie Smith and then also um, on a book of Du Bois's uh, visual data Um, and in in each case both of them are are so expressive and their voices are so beautifully unencumbered you know they mark their space can you tell me about your relationship with these artists um, and what working on those projects meant to you yeah yeah both projects were life-changing, um, practice-changing mm-hmm. projects. And it, it totally connects to that idea of lineage. And, um, you know, I knew who W.B. Du Bois was, but um, I actually first saw those data visualizations in 2017 when I was finishing a book for Mark Bradford with mm-hmm. my studio Polymode. And the curator, Katie Siegel, um, sent some images of them to us because one of the texts in Mark's book was uh, an excerpt of Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois, where he's sort of talking about um, uh, post-Civil War, like rebuilding of Black communities and and Black society. And I saw the diagrams and they were like, I was like, what are these? (laughs) Like, these are amazing. How do I not know these exist? They didn't work in Mark's book, but then shortly after I got contacted by Britt Russert and Whitney Battle Baptiste, who are the editors of that book, Mm -hmm. um, to write about the design. So they they are sociologist scholars or scholars of Du Bois, and they asked uh, Mabel O. Wilson, who's an amazing architectural critic who wrote the book Negro Buildings and had been researching Du Bois for a while, and and those particular works in the in the Negro exhibit that was like at this world's fair in Paris in 1900. And that was also so shocked that it had such a visible uh, presence in Europe where you have this fair where there's, you know, up to 50 million people attending the fair, who knows how many went to his exhibition, but I just was like, Whoa. Um, And then Alden Morris, who is the foremost Du Bois scholar. And so I felt really privileged because you have these kind of experts on this, these other aspects of Du Bois that are more well-known, his historian qualities, his sociology qualities, but him as a designer and sort of how does that fit into both his body of work, but like the larger canon of graphic design was such a huge opportunity. And that's what kind of really opened up this idea of 
um, centering voices and perspectives that were historically excluded from design. And the graphics are so innovative. I mean, they're 19 years before the Bauhaus, oh. before Russian constructivism, and they're, they're beautiful and they're so thoughtful. And um, the rhetoric of them, of pushing against slavery in these, these posters that were installed in this exhibition, uh, it's just so innovative. He was so ahead of, I mean, literally like a century ahead of his time. It could be at home, you know, in a contemporary museum in the London Design Museum or the Cooper Hewitt, um, which is is so mind-blowing. And I feel like Willie, speaking of the Cooper Hewitt, Willie Smith, it was also very similar for me to be able to work on that project. I didn't really know about Willie Smith really, which is like tragic, you know, mm. and like a per perfect example of not having access to mentors. And he was such a force. I mean, similar to Du Bois, but in his own way, multi-talented, very polymodal. He made fashion, but he collaborated with artists and choreographers. I mean, he made costumes for a uh, performance with sets by Keith Haring, and he worked with Bill T. Jones and Arnie Zane, and um, he was a patron of the arts. Like, he was so connected to this New York downtown scene from the 70s and 80s and was wildly successful as a business person, right, mm -hmm. who happens to be Black and queer. And he I think he and Bolin would really get along because, yes. you know, there's a number of quotes in the exhibition where he's like, I don't want to be treated as a black designer. I just want to be treated as a designer, yeah. basically. Mm -hmm. And that the energy around his work and like he had these amazing stores with like architecture that was like cutting edge and like literally made out of materials taken from the Christopher Street piers, you know, where he would cruise at night and, you know, collaborated with site architects to to make these spaces. So I think what I love about Willie and it, working on the project, it felt like meeting this uncle, <laughs> loving uncle, a well ancestor. I mean, unfortunately, he died of AIDS mm -hmm. young, which is, is terribly untimely. But this is like before, you know, Virgil Abloh, right? <laughs> like he helped create and define streetwear and you know unisex or gender non-conforming clothing and so getting to know him in the project it did feel like wow like maybe I can embody some of Willie's sensibility of yeah. mm -hmm. no nonsense utopian utilitarian his clothes are very accessible and so I think this combination of style fashion and accessibility I yeah. think is super cool and I think that's a big model of that idea of being unencumbered is you can make things that are beautiful that also want to change the world or are changing the world. All of these amazing creatives are our ancestors and with that in mind how would you hope to perhaps be defined by others within the context of mm. art and design, uh, maybe your students or, and, and even beyond that, um, moving forward, um, how would you, how would you like to, to fit into that ancestry mm. map? I love that you mentioned that. And I, I do and have been thinking a lot, <clears throat> have been thinking a lot about legacy mm. and impact. And I think one of the things that the, ancestral medicine book and this idea of lineages 
is not just designing and living for this moment and this day. Of course, you do need to do that. That's sort of like I work at a human scale, but really thinking about how do I want my work to be remembered and retold? You know, what, what and how and in what ways can my work support someone I may never meet? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, how, how could, you know, a young black gay designer or artist or young person who is coming into the field, like how can it, the, either the teaching I do or the history or the design work, like how can it be a bit of, Laverne Cox calls it a possibility model, right? Like, like for, for someone else. And I think, I think about that a lot and that it feels heavy sometimes as a kind of responsibility, but it also feels like a huge honor. I think Mm. to be in this series of successions or networks, you know, people like Du Bois or Elaine Locke or Willie Smith, or, you know, even contemporary living people, Mark Bradford or Frank Bowen, like to be connected to legacies of expression, of creativity that shows possible anyone can be an artist and thrive at it, especially people who have been historically marginalized is what really helps me show up, (laughs) show up to the page, show up to the studio, show up in the classroom, show up in the world. That's a beautiful place to end and a beautiful thought to end on and thank you so much for yeah my pleasure it was an absolute joy talking to you thank you silas thank you so much i'm glad we made this happen i'm so such a fan (laughs) you can be my first first fan (laughs) i have a fan (laughs) thank you for listening to my conversation with silas monroe This series, inspired by the work of Frank Bowling, is sponsored by Hauser & Wirth. Editing and mixing is by C.A. Davis and music is by Brian Jackson. If this conversation has inspired you to explore the work of Frank Bowling more, I've added links to his work in the episode's description. You can also enjoy the forthcoming exhibition, Frank Bowling, London and New York, showing at Hauser & Wirth in New York on 22nd Street from the 5th of May and in Hauser & Wirth, London from the 21st of May. And come and say hi to Shade on Instagram at shade underscore podcast and on Twitter at shadepodcast1. And check out our website too for all of the episode archives. I've been your host, Lou Mensah, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye for now.